Hello and welcome along to episode five of Trinity Reconnected, the series where I catch up with fellow 1982 graduates from Trinity College in Dublin. My name is Jerry Foley. My guests today are language graduates, so I'm expecting a very fluent discussion about life then and of course now. So let's meet the gang, starting with Michael. Hello, uh, Michael Cronin. Um, I'm Professor of French in, in Trinity College Dublin and Director of the Trinity Centre for uh, Language and Cultural Translation. Sounds very impressive. We'll find out more. Claire, over to you. My name is Claire Cunningham from Northern Ireland. Uh, came down to Dublin to go to Trinity and haven't managed to escape since. And I work as an independent radio and TV producer and director. And finally, it's hello to Peter. Hello, Jerry. How are you? So I'm a, I'm a writer, teacher, and a kind of few other a few other um, things as, as as well, but mainly those. And that's Peter, sir. So listen, let's have a look a little bit about uh, your deepest memories, I suppose, of of Trinity. I want to come to you, Claire, because the last episode we were talking to uh, people who came down from the north, like yourself, and you were telling me about coming from Straban, coming from a convent school down to Trinity, and actually for the first time meeting Protestants, God forbid, <laughs> from Straban <laughs> in your class. Uh, yes. It, um, well, Straban is kind of very much, well, 90% Catholic town. And I'd say growing up, the number of Protestants I knew I could have counted in the fingers of one hand and certainly didn't know any as friends. Then when I was at Trinity, there were a lot of Northerners because things, uh, as you can imagine, weren't too good in in the north in 1978 and I'd say a third of my class were from Northern Ireland and I remember being at a party in Trinity in somebody's rooms and somebody said oh here's so-and-so you two must know each other you're both from Straban and we looked at each other and we had grown up I'd say about half a mile from each other but of course this guy had gone to the Protestant boys school I had gone to the Catholic girls school and (laughs) never the twain shall meet and we had never actually met in Straban. And is not that well? It, it's it's a very true story because there were very good reasons why your paths wouldn't have crossed. And Michael, I just wanted to uh, talk a little bit about your days at Trinity because obviously you're now a professor of French at Trinity, but you grew up in an Irish-speaking uh, home. Yes, well, that was my my mother very very strong uh, interest in the Irish language. So that was very much part of the. The family um, upbringing. There was that that kind of the presence of of of, of two languages, um, but I do remember the thing about you know going to Trinity in, in 1978. You know, I I came from uh, a, a Catholic boys' school in, in 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 Dublin where it was pretty much kind of frowned upon um, to go to to Trinity. They made it very diff made it very difficult for us to do the the Trinity matriculation examination. Uh, and I remember sort of uh, going there. Um, it was a, a, the sense of, you know, a particular kind of of, of space where you could uh, explore ideas and think about things, which is very different from, you know, what at the time was a very kind of hegemonic uh, presentation of 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 of, of things and and, and a quite kind of almost kind of claustrophobic. Um, but I think maybe at a deeper level, um, it was the sense of um, of liberation and free exploration. And, and Claire was talking there about, you know, her experience of of, of meeting Protestants from Straban, 
Um, but it was, uh, you know, for somebody like myself, a Dubliner, it was a dual experience uh, of meeting Northern Catholics and Protestants. I mean, who, who were both unknown species, you know, in, in, uh, in my kind of uh, childhood experiences growing up in suburban Dublin. I see. You know, I was just I was just thinking about Michael was saying about meeting unexpected or, or new species there. And of course, a new species that, that that I was very interested in meeting was was women. Having gone to was having gone to a um, again like Michael, you know, kind of an old boys, um, you know, kind of rugby mad um, school in 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 Dublin. So that was so. It was like, yeah, but I mean, I, I all the, all those things that Michael was saying that kind of sense of liberation and freedom and kind of obviously Dublin was a kind of a dark enough place in lots of ways. But yeah, but it was an innocent. It was a kind of more instant, a much smaller. Trinity was a much smaller place. Then and it felt intimate, and you kind of got to know lots of people very quickly. I remember uh, getting very involved in the students' union, um, and when Joe Duffy and Alex White and Liam Hayes, you know, came to power in the students' union in 1979, um, there were 16 students in the entire student body from what were called an unskilled or manual background. Um, wow. So you know, th- this this kind of you know the the, the the shadow of of class i think still hasn't uh, left the system by any manner of means. although in fairness to trinity the trinity access program and there's lots of initiatives now to try and widen the intake but uh, claire do you remember because you would have known them at the time what i remember most about uh, joe duffy is that uh, we used to call him joe duffelcoat yeah. <laughs> and I, I just have visions of him standing on the steps you know outside the dining room sort of um speechifying on something or other I can't even remember what I'm sure it was lots of different things but funny what you're talking about there about the certain snob value in Trinity I remember somebody I remember being in conversation with someone and I can't even remember who the person was now but they sort of turned around and they made this remark and it was and it certainly wasn't oh isn't it wonderful what you've done or isn't it your your parents must be proud the the remark was oh oh so you're first generation third level education are you a real marker, could, yeah, mm, putting you down, putting you in your place, really, wasn't yeah, it? Yeah, and I, I kind of couldn't believe that anyone would even think that way, you know. And I was thinking, like, my my parents, like, my mother left school at 13 and was sent to work in the, in, you know, in the local factory and kind of hated every minute of it. My father left school at 14, and they were extremely proud that all four of their children went to third-level education and did very well. So I just, I was astonished that someone even thought like that and spoke like that. I was going to say to to Michael, what was your ambition once you got into academia to somehow get back into a post in Trinity? Uh, no, <laughs> short answer to that question. Um, no, I mean, I, I to some extent, my my main ambition during the eighties when I was, was to just to try and survive, by it because there was nothing in in nineteen eighty two an offer, and I, and I remember going to the man called Eric Gyrie, who was the kind of the chief career guidance counsellor at the time and um, he went to his office and he had his desk at the very end of a long room and I, you got as far as the desk and you know he gestured me sit down and he said um, so so what subjects have you studied in college and I said um, English and French and he just said oh dear and he just kind of lowered his head you know for uh, two or three minutes you know and there was silence and then he suddenly got this inspiration and um he, he, he ran over this filing cabinet and he plucked out this form and he showed it to me. And it was positioned to be uh, an English language assistant. Um, 
in the American University in Beirut, you know, starting in 1982 in September. And of course, that was the uh, the month that the Israelis launched uh, Operation Galilee. And uh, uh, so, and all hell broke broke loose. An arts degree was the equivalent of, of, of Colin signing the treaty. It was a kind of a, you know, <laughs> a kind of a death warrant, you know, in career terms, you know, that you, you uh, you signed up for it, but uh, so I mean, then subsequently, really, I mean, it was it was a question of um, trying to to see where um, you, you could find work and I work, and then I got this extraordinarily lucky break in, in, in the mid eighties with a, a job that came up in, in, in DCU, and um, um, so you know, when I finally I, I, I moved from there, it was more that I kind of what I felt I exhausted the possibilities of uh, of that university and, and, and wanted something new, but then it was very going back to Trinity was this real Rip Van Winkle experience, you know, where, you know, I, I, I find myself in the, 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 the arts building, which I kept referring to as, as, as new arts block until somebody pointed out it was, it was new 40 years ago, but <laughs> not new. Yeah. Um, Claire, your actually first real job, in a way, um, was a spin-off from Trinity. We're now used to the ideas, particularly on the tech side and the business departments, so all sorts of new partnerships, creating new markets, developing new technologies. But your job came out of Trinity as well. Yes, it was one of the campus companies that was set up. I think one of the earlier ones uh, was a guy called Sean Devitt in the Department of Education kind of set it up initially. And it was called Authentic Language Learning Resources Limited. And it was, uh, well, you can imagine now, if you're teaching Spanish in class and you want to find an article from a Spanish newspaper or magazine, you know, to use in your classroom, I mean, all you do is, is go online. But back in the olden days, you either had to go to Spain on your holidays and buy a newspaper and a few magazines and bring them back with you or get someone to post them to you. So Sean's idea was to collect um, extracts from uh, at one stage, it was French, German, Spanish, Italian program. And while I was still working for Authentic, I suggested an idea to uh, the early equivalent of Doc on One and Radio One. I suggested an idea for a radio program. And they said, oh, you seem to know what you're doing, dear. Off you go and make it. So my holiday one year was I took two weeks and I went up and down the hills of Donegal looking for old farmers who remembered the hiring fair in Straban. And I mm. found three people still alive who'd been hired. And that was my first program. But then I went back. Yeah. I want to go back to Peter actually to take us after your five years in Trinity. So your four year undergrad, then your master's. Six Mm -hmm. years. Six years. I didn't want to leave. Oh, you didn't want to, oh, you see, wow. no, you see, you see I, I didn't want to leave because I mean the only thing, the only thing to be honest, Jerry, the only thing I was interested in at the time was writing poems, and because I thought you know, and I could I could understand why my, my mother had pleaded with me, please don't, please don't do an arts degree, you know, and do something sensible like 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 work in a bank, like like my dad had and stuff, and so I was kind of I was I did I stayed on it's four years it was four years to do the the um, BA and then and then um, at that point I signed up to do an MLit which which was like a two year program and so that was great because because I, I, I thought okay well I'll just write um, I'll st- you know I'll use the time to to write um, poems and and did that and then, and then sort of the secondary thing was the was was trying to do the degree and I just I partly didn't want to leave because I knew that there was a bleak world out there beyond the walls of Trinity and that. Um, there wasn't, there weren't, as you know, I had exactly the same experience that Michael had with the careers and, dis- and disappointments. So I knew, I mean, he said, to, he said to me, it's not a question of what you want to do, but where, where do you want to go? So it's going to be, you know, am I going to go to the States or Germany or Holland and all of that? And in the end, I did end up leaving 
the the country once I once I kind of finished um, swanning around Trinity and, and and writing the poems. Then I I um, got on a plane and I went to live in Holland for about four years, and then after that I went to Italy and worked um, in both places teaching a thing called the International Baccalaureate, kind of like literature for you know in these kind of private um, schools um, abroad. And so that was that's 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 what I kind of did. And it was great. I have to say, I, I was it was a great experience in that it was a way of also just seeing a bit of the world outside of Ireland and, and living in Europe, which I'd always kind of wanted to do anyway. And let's just uh, pick up a little bit because you have uh, last year published a book, Intimate City, which is mainly about Dublin. But there's a section in it which talks about your first year in the Netherlands, in Amsterdam, I think it was. Mm. Do you just want to give us a little bit of flavour of your memories of that time? Yeah, I just, it's just a few sentences from that, and it was just, it was just what I remember about it was the first time, first winter that I spent in Holland was so cold, and I'd never been as cold in my life, and and it was an unusually cold winter for some reason, and so this is just a few sentences from 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 that. Winter, in fact, is what keeps me going, suspends normalcy, charges with life. It's the coldest winter in a decade. Canals and rivers have frozen over, allowing the Elfstedentocht that race on ice around 11 towns to take place. Skaters in bright suits, their bodies bent double, flash by on TV sets. Rain freezes as it hits the streets. I can feel icicles in my hair. Once, the train from Amsterdam that bears me to work in Hilversum is prevented from running, bringing delicious freedom. My clothes freeze on the veranda irretrievable because the cold has jammed the door. That was one of my main memories is that I could I had to wait until spring to get my clothes off the line. Um in the in the flat I was in the flat I was saying and it's just it's very evocative and also earlier in this series we all remember the extremely cold and heavy snow to yeah. the beginning of January in nineteen eighty two. So then a yeah. few years later you got to know Peter, in the Netherlands, real cold, yeah. ice skating on the rivers. Ice skating on the rivers. Yeah, yeah, that was that was that was just a big fascination for me. Yeah, yeah. No, it, well, it's it, it's very uh, symbolic. <laughs> you see those classical paintings, don't you, of uh, Dutch yeah. ice skaters? Listen, let's just take a little break if we can. We'll take a little break now just to get the news headlines from 1982, read as always by the former RT newscaster, and that's Clodagh Walsh. or the European Economic Community, as it was then known as, issued a warning to Ireland in early March, calling on the government to take urgent action to deal with the country's high public debt, as well as its very high inflation rate. The latter was running at close to 20%. The poor state of the economy was to lead to several years of big cuts, plus rising unemployment, with thousands forced to emigrate. In other 1982 news, despite the weak economy, Ireland's love affair with the Cheltenham races was still strong. 13 would-be punters were detained at Cork and Dublin airports with over 12,000 Irish pounds, confiscated by customs officers. The rules at the time allowed for a maximum of 500 pounds in foreign currency. Uh, the Cheltenham races. My dad was a great lover of the Cheltenham races, so I have some fond memories of watching it on black and white TV back in the 70s. But the more serious question we've always re- already reflected that is, of course, the poor state of the economy, the fact that so many people did leave, and it took a long time for the economy to discover its energy, I suppose, and there's been many twists and turns 
since then. And in preparing for this uh, particular podcast, I, I felt I had to be really on my game because all of you have done broadcasting and know what makes a good broadcast work or not. So firstly, uh, Michael, you ended up uh, being a presenter for TG Caha. Uh, yes, yeah, I, it was the kind of thing that it, initially uh, I was um, uh, was a guest on on, on a program uh, on on TG uh, Caha and with with uh, Ranach. and um, so I, you know I did a few of these programs went to Connemara and um, anyway one of the the, the producers of the, of the, the, the program was interested in my way of talking about things or whatever so when, when they launched this arts program called Immel um, I got in, in, involved in in, in in doing that and in doing pieces uh, for them and um, it, it, I mean what was very interesting was the experience of doing television because in midway through the, the 1990s um, I did a, a radio series uh, for uh, RTE uh, Radio 1 called the Museum of Ideas where I looked at particular concepts like family, republic and so on, explorers with with with, with different guests, with uh, anthropologists, you know, family therapists, social historians and so on. Um, so that was the experience of, of doing, but the experience of doing television is quite different because... Very different. It's very, it's a very constructed medium, you know, it's, um, and you, the, the thing about it is that the, the language of television is... is is visual as much as uh, auditory. So you have to think about how you make an argument through images. You know? And um, so that, that kind of very deliberate construction of, and the fact that, you know, you, time is always a huge constraint in, t- in television. You know, you, 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 we, we did this, for example, wonderful interview, I remember, uh, with the, the, the late Ulick O'Connor um, that lasted for um, 65 minutes and, and 12 minutes went out on air, you know. I mean, that's so... You, and and I'm sure the producers were even pushing back against you going 12 minutes? Are you sure? Yes, 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 to 10 minutes? Yes, yes, yes. But Claire, you would know all about this because you've worked through your own company. You're the producer of the poetry programme on Radio 1. You do lots of other... Uh, programs, including for Radio 4, Lyric FM, uh, BBC Radio 3, but you also do some television visual work, and uh, particularly for some German educational companies. So which is your preferred medium? Is it is it the radio? Is it the audio? Well, do you know, what I love about doing radio is that you can control an awful lot of it yourself. You know, as as one person, you can go, you can come up with the, the idea, you can find the contributors, you can go out there and record, and then you can edit it. And I really love that and the, and the, the control and working on my own. But then what I love about TV is actually, I, I love it for the very opposite reasons. The fact that I'm with a whole team of people with all different skills and I get to work with them. And what, what I really love is kind of having a balance between the two. And in in recent years, I've actually I've done a lot more radio, uh, which was probably just as well during the lockdown, because, you know, I kind of could work from home, could do a lot of that work. And I I dipped my toe just last uh, summer. I dipped my toe back into the TV video field again. I was filming over in um, in the UK. It was a, a video for German kids learning English, like little dramas. And it just reminded me what I really enjoyed about doing that. So I'd, I'd, I'd love to do more TV. I'd, lo- I'd love to make a really a real arty farty kind of documentary, and all I need is somebody to give me about a hundred thousand euro to go off and make it. <laughs> we'll see what we can do. And talking about the joy of working with the right team when it comes to producing content, Peter, 
yourself and your good wife, Enda, have your own podcast. What's it like working together? And it's all about books and literature. So um, what's the dynamic like? (laughs) Yeah, it's kind of interesting. I mean, I mean, this started is really as a lockdown project. I mean, it was some because it, it was a way of, I suppose, publicising and talking to you know new books by writers and talking to writers um, who didn't have the opportunity to kind of promote their their work or to have launches in bookshops and so on. So, so we set we set it up, and then it kind of got a momentum of its own, and it's kept going. And so we're now on the most recent episode. We were talking to to Gabriel Byrne about his new kind of memoir. We've also talked to people like um, you know Claire Keegan about her about her new book. And, or or the poet Thomas McCarthy on his diaries and so on. So it's kind of it's kind of it's become fascinating. And yeah, it's kind of interesting doing it with with um, with Enda. I mean, we, we we kind of do it from different rooms. Often she, she she's downstairs and I'm upstairs, and then we're talking to somebody online, sort of like we're doing now um, with yourself, you know. But it's a lot it's a lot of fun. I mean, it's it's a bit of it's a bit of work as well because you have to read it all is these a bit books. of work. Yeah, like tomorrow, for instance, we're going to be talking to um, Wendy Erskine about um, her new. Uh, collection of stories and 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 that you know that kind of thing. So it's kind of interesting. So 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 you're it, it keeps you going. I mean, you, you have to kind of keep up with you know um, the new writing that's out there, new fiction and new poetry and and so forth. No, well, it's been very successful. So many congrats on that. We're coming towards the end, and I suppose one of the things which I want to confess about is, and Claire knows this. Uh, I now do uh, interviews at a lot of uh, different book festivals in the UK, so I have to read and interview authors across genres, mm-hmm. much to my embarrassment and Claire's dismay, I just don't get poetry. It's a terrible thing to say. Convince me, somebody. What am sorry, I? You, sorry, hang on a second. You don't get it? Or as, as in you don't buy it or you don't, or you don't get I don't, it? As, I don't buy it. it, it or you it don't. Doesn't, it doesn't resonate with me if I can... And maybe I should try harder. I don't know. Somebody that's, that's too many. That, that's it's too many years of ESS in Trinity. Did that to you? <laughs> I, I've, no, I've noticed that. I, I'm a philistine. Fr- I'm barbarian. Uh, yeah. I, I think you're a lost cause, Jerry. I'm sorry to say it, <laughs> Michael. <laughs> yeah, well, I think you know the things about uh, poetry is that uh, you're listening to all all the time. You know, I mean, every time you. Uh, uh, listen to a CD or turn on the radio, and um, th- th- there's poetry there, you know. I mean, so to some extent, it's like that famous uh, Moliere play where Monsieur Jordan, the, the instructor, says to him, You know, um, you know, I can teach you how to speak prose, you know, and um, so he basically teaches him to say the things that he already, <laughs> he's already said. I mean, I think that uh, you, you probably are immersed in poetry a lot more than you than, than you realise. Well, actually, in fairness, uh, Peter, if I just come back to you briefly on this, I'm involved in the local Berwick-upon-Tweed uh, book festival, and they're very keen on poets, and particularly mm. younger poets. And there is a new audience out there for poetry. Is that something you've felt and seen as well? Yeah, to an extent. I mean, I mean, there's there is there is an audience out there. I mean, and there are many poets. So there, you know, there are many young poets writing, you know, in Ireland elsewhere, and and they have audiences. And you know, there are festivals, there are poetry festivals as well. I mean, there was a great there was a great one in England, um, the Albrook um, Festival, um, poetry festival um, that took place every year. And and you know, so so there are new audiences being created, and I've never seen any diminution in, in interest in it. I mean, it's not. I mean, maybe it's like composers of new music or something. It's not necessarily or jazz or something like that. It's not necessarily um, to everybody's tastes, but it's but it's still there and it won't it it, it kind of refuses to die, you know? Which is good for Claire uh, as the producer of the poetry program on RT Radio One. So Claire, just the last question to you. Who's the youngest poet that you've had on the program? Can you remember? 
Yes. Um, I think she was eight. Or was she six? I think she was wow. eight. Um, it, it was uh, when the first lockdown happened, we were inundated with poems. Every poet in the country started writing their lockdown poems and their pandemic poems, and we got loads sent into us. So in June 2020, we did a special episode of the poetry program. In fact, a certain Peter Sir might have contributed to it. <laughs> <laughs> and there was one man, he sent in a poem that he had written and one that his daughter had written. And we got him to record his daughter. I think she was eight years old. She must be the youngest one that we've ever had. On. Ah, that's a lovely, that's lovely to see in safe hands. Can I just say a really warm thank you to Claire, Peter and Michael for a wonderful conversation. Thank you for joining us here on Trinity Reconnected. We'll be back in two weeks' time. But for now, thanks again for listening. 